the Canucks measuring stick road trip got off to a tough start in Florida. It is the Canucks hour here on your home with the Canucks. Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who of course also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. We waited so long. There was so much anticipation for the Canucks to finally get back on the ice. We knew it was going to be a tough test. And that's kind of, at least, how it turned out. Certainly when you look at the scoreline, 5-2. Not the return. The Canucks wanted, not the return. Canucks fans wanted, but still a lot to dig into from that result last night, Drancer. Yeah, so let's break down the game. Let's do it, man. Are are we going to make, like, Kodak Black and get into it? Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin with that. No idea where to begin with that. I thought the Canucks played well. Like, fundamentally, I thought they had a good game. Um, I'm, it's one of those odd things where I thought their first period was bad. Like, I actually thought the first period was way worse than it looked like on the shot clock. They had five shots on that power play opportunity, which looked, honestly, for me, not as dangerous as five shots on one power play opportunity imply. Um, you know, not having JT Miller, who was in the box during that power play opportunity showed for me. Um, you know, it just didn't look quite as... Uh, liquid as it has for most of the last 10 games uh, or at least since Boudreaux took over but you know other than those five shots I felt like everything was from outside the Dickinson chance felt like the only notable chance in the game from a or in the first period from a Vancouver perspective and even that one was only sort of notable because it went in right because Bobrovsky sort of let in a softy yeah um on the other hand, you had the Panthers who, like, hit the post on the Forsling shot, the Bennett miss, which was just wild, and then they get the two goals. And, I mean, I didn't think those goals were as soft or, like, point shot goals or as fortunate as people thought. I thought that tip by Bennett was deft. I thought the Ekblad stutter wind-up that just completely froze Pedersen, and it wasn't even a bad defensive play. I know I, I'm, like, almost reluctant to bring up his name in this context right. because – of how this market reacts to but it wasn't a bad play by him it wasn't bad coverage obviously you'd rather he get it but it was just a great little fake and and just sort of a half fake from one of the best and most lethal shooters from the point in the nhl i don't i didn't sort of have any problems with those goals it just felt like the first period was one where whatever the stat sheet says that could have been 4-1 panthers very easily or 3-0 panthers very easily the canucks survived and then in the second period I thought they were incredibly good, like at their absolute Boudreaux bump best yep. for 10 minutes, and then a soft call against Huberto scores, an absolute no-doubter. I've seen some criticism of Demko's play, and I'm kind of baffled. Like, I don't know what goal you want him no. to have back. It's like Ekblad point shot with a perfect fake, uh, insanely good tip, Sam Reinhart tip. Sasha Barkov in a breakaway. Do you know Sasha Barkov's over 50% for his career on shootouts? Come on. Um, you know, a Huberdeau seeing eye wrist shot, no chance. And then the and then the Maxim Mammon goal. Maybe you want him to have the Mammon goal, but it's that was backhand roof. Like, I don't know. And then, you know, that was a that was a poor bit of coverage from Niels Hoaglander, who also had a poor bit of coverage, by the way, on the Forsling post hit. I thought he had a really tough game defensively last night. Um, but you know, for the most part, I look at this game and I'm thinking the Canucks had the balance of chances with the when the game was close 
um, when the game was within a goal for about 30 minutes. And it's just they made two mistakes against an elite offense, both in the back of the net, bang, bang. And that's game. Yeah. Like, that sort of game. And, and, and then, obviously, they carry play the rest of the way. And that I don't give them as much credit for, like, the 46 shots. What I give them a lot of credit for, though, is n- missing 10 days of work entirely, coming back on the road against that team following a transcontinental flight, a bunch of players just coming back from COVID protocol, all of that context. And for 30 minutes from the 13-minute mark of the first through – you know, the the bad shift that leads to the Mammon sort of back-breaking 4-1 goal, for 30 minutes they were the better team yep. against an elite, elite club. Um, I, I kind of came away thinking, you know, th- those are going to happen. I, I, I'm more impressed by what I saw for half an hour in Florida from this team, considering the circumstances, than I have been by their performance and some of their wins, m- most notably some of the wins like, um, you know, or, or certainly the uh, shootout loss in L.A., uh, certainly the Boston win. Like, there have been some games on that win streak that I thought they were far less impressive than they were last night. That's hockey. Yeah, and there's there's we talked about it leading into this road trip, right? There's, a, there's two different things you're watching. Obviously, you're still watching how many points they can come away with. Yep. Can they keep pace in the Western Conference playoff race? Didn't get the result from that perspective. But then the larger and arguably the more important conversation is what the underlying process looks like and that obviously you know that has ramifications not just for the rest of this year but looking into the future as well because as we've talked about a lot the president of this hockey team the president of hockey operations Jim Rutherford is still very much in that evaluative period where he's trying to make sense of what he has in this roster and there's a temptation I think if you you know if you kind of tuned out after they went down to nothing right and it's the thing with those goals, you're right, they're not like soft goals, lucky goals or anything like that, but they did feel like backbreakers just because they came from the point. And, and you're expecting Florida to score these kind of beautiful tic-tac-toe, grade-A opportunities against you. And when the goals don't start out as grade-A opportunities, it feels like, oh man, if, we're, if, if the team is given those ones up, how are they going to be able to come back in this game? Anyways. Fair. It, no, I, I understand that. I just... Those they're not still, lucky. They're, they're good no, goals. They're still they're good goals. goals. Of like, course they are. Those are hard saves. Of course they are. If it's kind of tuned out after that and had it on in the background, then you know you look up at the end of the third period and it's 5-2 Florida. The temptation is to say, oh, well, yeah, this is what happens when they go up at a, a, against a legit team. You know, they played poorly. They got dominated by Florida. And there were certainly moments where Florida really showed their quality, as you said, certainly in the first half of the first period. And I thought the other thing that really stood out, stood out about the Panthers, and Bruce Boudreaux said this, is, you know, they are not a team that needs a lot of opportunities to score, right? You give them just a you give them an inch and they can pay they can punish you. They can make you pay for giving them that inch. And I think they showed that. But as you said, by and large, for a long stretch of that game, the Canucks were actually pretty impressive. Once they got their legs under them, once they got it back to two one, that felt like a really important moment. And man, early in that second period, when you consider the fact that it was Sergei Bobrovsky and Nat, now he ended up having a good game, but there were some shaky moments, I thought, from Bobrovsky early. There were moments in that second period where you thought, man, this game is right there for them to tie it up. Like, they're they're controlling play. It's Bobrovsky they're shooting against, so you feel pretty good about their chances. They weren't able to do it, and then again, it's two, two goals, bang, bang, and you thought, okay, 4-1 is just a little bit too much. But again, if you think if you look past the scoreline... And look, I know it's you know moral victories and all that, and people don't want to hear it. But if you just focus on the underlying process, considering the circumstances, I think there's a lot for the Canucks to take away from that performance. Yeah, I you know what I I agree with you a hundred percent, 
but I'm struggling to avoid making a... So you're saying it was a game of inches at Flaw Live Arena last night, <laughs> Joe? So once I, once I get past that, we, we can have a really interesting conversation. I feel, like, I feel like we should set aside like five minutes at the end of the first <laughs> segment to just like get out all of our Kodak Black I know, jokes. I know. It's... it's it's not possible. I thought I, <laughs> hockey Twitter was on fire last night, like on fire oh boy. Oh more boy. so than the Florida Panthers offense. All right. So I love the parallel tracks idea about this road trip, right? Because it's, you know, the, the keeping the light on in terms of the playoff race, right? And their playoff chances, uh, which take, you know, it's such an unfair situation to be in. But the way the NHL standings work, it's really hard to gain ground. And no matter how close you look, when there's as many teams between you and, and the second wild card spot as there are, every loss kills your odds. And every win is just like a small step yeah. toward having a realistic shot, right? Like the leverage of every loss is way higher than the le- leverage of every win when you're making up ground. And, and it's such a cruel spot to be in, especially with the context that surrounds this team. And on that end, you know, last night's loss hurts, right? Hurts a fair bit. But I think you're right that if you're trying to see this team clearly, and that's the hardest thing to do right now. I don't know why this team, this team is so hard for us to understand who they are. Because they came into the season and we know their first 25 games were below their level, right? And then we also know that 8-1-1 over 10 games is Above also their not their level. Yeah, no. So it, it feels like at no point have we seen this team as who they are. There's and, no, like, 15-game stretch that you can look at and be like, that's the Canucks. Yeah. That's exactly who the Canucks are. Totally, totally. And, and, then, and then because of the coaching change, too, it's like, do you look at the sum total of the 35, or do you want to split it? Do you believe that they've become a materially different club since the coaching change? And I think it's an indisputable that they have become to some degree, right? But to, to what degree? To what extent? Yep. And and how much should that inform how Jim Rutherford and his new front office approach the trade deadline and approach upgrading this roster to the point that they're contending, right? I mean, it's a really tricky situation. And, and, and honestly, it probably doesn't help Rutherford that the club has lost seven games like poof like just out into the ether, right? And and we'll have those made up in a compressed schedule in February. Like it, it that also sort of adds to the complexity of what this franchise is working through in the big picture. But but on to to rewind back to the micro, I think you have to look at that game and and I think it speaks volumes to that Bruce Boudreaux came back with the exact same lineup at practice today. Yeah. That's always a really good indication after a loss that the coach thinks his team played pretty well. Not perfectly, but pretty well. And and I think it's a I, – I thought that was a a really strong indicator of how Vancouver's coach, anyway, rated his club's performance last night. And as much as in the lead-up to the game, you know, Bruce Boudreaux, I think you even asked him in one of the availabilities, right? Do you have to kind of, you know, look at the context of the layoff when you're trying to evaluate your team's performance on this road trip? And, of course, we know what a coach is going to say there and the players are going to say, right? They're, we're not making excuses. You know, we're still trying to win. But you're right. I think the fact that Bruce Boudreaux is kind of 
acknowledging, hey, you know what? We actually did some things really well last night by coming back with the same lineup. I think he's recognizing that, yeah, given the circumstances, there were a lot of positives to take away from that game. 650-650, by the way, is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And I'll throw the question out to the listeners. What did we learn about the Canucks in that game against Florida? And I mean that, you know, what, what did we learn about how the rest of this road trip is going to look like? What did we learn about what the rest of this season is going to look like? What did we learn about going forward, about the job that Jim Rutherford has to do evaluating and improving this team beyond this season? And I will say, just from a, a purely kind of, you know, intangible narrative standpoint, the fact that they did hang in the game after they were down 2 nothing early, and not just hang in the game, like assert themselves on the game, get back into it, look like they were really going to threaten to tie it up when it was 2-1... That impressed me because, again, obviously they weren't sharp to begin with. You're in Florida. You know you've got such a long road trip ahead of you. There's always going to be that temptation to kind of pack it in, right, and save some of that energy, and they didn't do that. And I I don't know if it's fair to kind of draw the comparison – to the first 25 games of the season where it felt like when something did go against them in those first 25 games, it just it was so deflating for the team. They had such a hard time getting back into the game. They could have been deflated like that last night, and they weren't. So I do think that was something we learned about the team last night. And, you know, I just I, – I also – I no, we already knew this, right, that we they need Thatcher Demko to be really, really strong. I think you can look at it and say, look, Thatcher Demko is going to have better games than that on this road trip. And if he does – okay, maybe they do have a chance at hanging with some of these teams, right? Because you're not going to get that Thatcher Demko performance on the, you know, four of the five games that he starts on this trip. I don't think anyways. I mean, I thought he was good, though. Sure. I thought, I thought I he made some stops. Purely by a percentages standpoint. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I thought he made some stops. You know, like, I think what concerns me is if Thatcher Demko has to be a lot better than that just for you to hang with those teams... That's not a good sign. And sorry, this isn't what I learned. This is my sure. takeaway from your point. Like, I look at Demko as having had roughly the game he should have had. You know, I, I don't know that the Panthers, in terms of the environment they created for Vancouver's starter, like, I don't know that they got a gimme. You know, I, and they still got five because that's what the Panthers do. They score four goals a game, right? Like, that's that's who they are. Um in terms of one thing that I thought the Canucks did really well on Tuesday night, if you look at the goals that the Panthers scored, and even if you look at their best chances, I felt like they were hard won. I felt like they were off the off the cycle. Uh, they were they were point shots with traffic. I felt like the Panthers had to pay a price to generate against the Canucks. And for all that we talked about the Panthers' lethal rush attack, for example, um, you know their only goal off the rush was the. Um, Sasha Barkov shorthanded breakaway. Yeah, right. The shorthanded breakaway. I felt like the Canucks forecheck absolutely disrupted the way that the Panthers like to break out, and you could see it sometimes where they'd be breaking out, and you'd have Sasha Barkov, who's the best in the league at being low, slow, and available, and he'd have to do like an extra curl because the defenders had already left the zone. Like they just weren't able to attack as a five-man unit, the way that they usually do. Now, their offensive machinery is so impressive when it grinds into gear. They still manufactured more than enough offense. Uh, They still threatened almost every time out. But I feel like the Canucks at least successfully took uh, took away option A and option B. 
and that to generate offense, the Panthers had to pay the price. They had to get dirty. They had to cycle the puck. They had to win multiple battles. I felt like the Canucks looked hard to play against last night, and I, and I love to see it. I love to see that. I think that's a really good sign, even though, again, I you know it, I'm not contradicting myself here either. The Panthers are good enough to generate, but considering the circumstance, the way that the team competed, the way that they, I even thought, imposed their game on the Panthers um, was good was like legitimately a, a positive for me, even though the Panthers were good enough to ultimately figure it out. And that's the kind of performance that they're going to have to replicate in every game on this every road game trip, on this right? Road like trip. you have to bring that level of execution and Except you, know, you can't and, and you, yeah, well, we'll see. Well, there you just have to find a way to beat Yusei Saros. Yeah. You know, and you can't do it only after the first 10 minutes, right? You have to do it in the first 10 minutes of the first period as well yeah. against Carolina, against Tampa. 100%. Tomorrow. You have to do it for 60 exactly. or at least 50. Yeah, like, or at least, you know, yeah, 50, You're going to have a really lull, but you need to, you, need to, you need to do it for longer than half the game, right? Um, and, then, and then on the concern side for me, I thought Hoaglander, Pedersen, Pearson had a really tough game. Yeah. I, I really did. I thought there were moments in the game where Pedersen looked like he moved the puck well, uh, where Pedersen seemed to be playing simple, like playing pretty simple hockey. And I thought that was a good look at him, a look on him, especially as he looks to just like get his feet back after the 10 day layoff that there, every player on the Canucks is enduring, but he also had the five days of uh, protocol layoff. Um, I, you know, I thought Hoaglander had some moments defensively that really concerned me and, and made me wonder about that fit. Um, I just didn't like the calibration of Pearson with Pedersen Hoaglander. I just, I, it didn't work for me. I, I don't know that Pearson's straight line game is a good compliment for them. Um, I think there the the Gustav Forsling post hit shift is like the perfect example of why Hoaglander can be tough to see clearly for fans in this market too, because he has this great forecheck in yep. checking shift. There's like a errant pass. That Hoaglander's first two because he read it so well. He wins a battle along the wall. He's just he looks like an absolute thorn in the side to break out against. And then it's again Barkov comes in and Hoaglander misreads like completely buys a Barkov fake. Ends up out of position. Can't cut the top off on on the pass up to the point. Um, even though the Canucks had the outnumbered position, and then you know it's very nearly a goal against. Um, and, and again, I thought his read on the Mammon goal, which was an absolute backbreaker, um, just wasn't good enough. So I sort of look at that line and I'm a little bit concerned about whether or not that really fits. And I wonder, are you getting enough from Horvat, Garland and Dickinson, Dickinson. who were the Vancouver's best line by far? Uh, other than, I guess, Highmore, Lamico, and Mott, I thought all had really yep. good games. Shout, but... out, shout out to Yuho Lamico, getting the revenge Sh- goal. Sh- shout out to, yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Lammy. Uh, but but truly, like, that line was really good. I think they were only on the ice for one shot against. One, pan- one Panther shot against. That's excellent, especially considering Florida's depth advantage. Um, but, you know, are you, getting, are you going to get enough over the long haul from Dickinson, Horvat, Garland to justify a suboptimal... Um, calibration on your third line because uh, you know if there was one part of the Canucks game that I sort of left with being like I don't know like I'm gonna try I, I might even read something into this despite the context yeah I, it was like I don't know the how much time uh, I have for seeing a lot more of Pearson Pedersen Hoaglander just as a trio yeah and as you mentioned you know the defensive struggles from Niels Hoaglander yesterday he was the low man on the team in terms of five on five ice time and overall ice time fewer than nine minutes five on five 
for Hoaglander. And the interesting thing with Pedersen is, and we had a text come in from Susan, I believe, saying, uh, will Bruce Boudreaux ever reunite the lotto line? The thing with Pedersen is, man, they have tried a lot of different combinations. You know, from Travis Green now to Bruce Boudreaux, they have tried Elias Pedersen with a ton of different line mates. And nothing has worked. And as you said, didn't look like a clean fit last night. Now they're going to run it back, or at least they ran it back in practice today. We'll see how they eventually send things out there against Tampa on Thursday. But the the question of reuniting Elias Pettersson with the lotto line, I completely understand the impetus, right? I completely understand the drive to do that. But at a certain point, I think you have to look at it as, do we risk doing something to slow down JT Miller's momentum and what he's doing for the team if we reunite the lotto line, right? And at a certain point, do you almost have to flip from, like, I understand the task in large part that Bruce Boudreaux, one of the tasks he was hired to do is get Elias Pettersson going, but this is also a team that's trying to win and trying to amass points. And at what point does it flip from being, okay, we're going to try all these combinations with the explicit goal of getting Elias Pettersson going to, well, if he's not contributing, maybe like we can't just reunite the lotto line just to get him going because those players are working elsewhere. You know what I mean, right? Like, there's a balance to be struck here where, yes, you have to find the right fit for Elias Pettersson, but I also think the idea of putting him back with Miller and Besser, it's like, okay, but those players are playing well. They're producing. He's not. Are you sacrificing potentially something for Miller and Besser just to try to boost Elias Pettersson at this point? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I'd more advocate for Pearson going up to play with Miller and Besser. I would too. I loved that line. We've seen that trio be very, very good recently. But you got to like seeing Vasily Podkolzin play 16 minutes five on five. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people in Vancouver who would look at that stat sheet and be like, yes, more, more Podkolzin. Yep. And, and not without cause, right? So it's interesting. He's stuck with the same lines. I'd assume we'll see the same lines again uh, against Tampa Bay. That'll be a big test because Tampa's deep too and and has an awful lot of ability to i mean <laughs> absolutely blanket the top of the lineup by throwing headman at them so you know it's going to be a fascinating challenge for the canucks to try and manufacture offense underneath that because that was sort of the other thing i found really interesting last night was how rarely oliver ekman larson played against the huberto line yeah, which is, you know, their most dangerous, right? Huberto looked awesome last night, I thought. Oh. I mean, he looks awesome pretty much every game, but what a player. You know, like, I, I I watched, it was the, I thought the penalty that Mott was assessed that led to the game winner, the Huberto game winner, I thought that was soft. I thought that was a, a pretty bad call. But to set it up, there's this, Huberto gets the puck on his forehand and does a quick, he, his feet stop moving because he stops basically. He stops basically. He does a quick forehand, backhand, forehand deke, and then hits a quick pop pass. I think it was to declare in the middle. Yeah. And I was watching it, and I never. I've watched Huberto practice two hundred times live. Right. I've seen on the bench. I've seen him play two hundred fifty times in person, and I've never before had this thought until that exact play. And I was like, you know what? Who that reminds me of? That reminds me of um, Daniel Sedin. That's a Daniel Sedin special right there. And then he scores from that spot on the left circle with that wrist shot. And I'm like, that's a Daniel Sedin shot. Like, how have I never noticed this? That's who he – and it, look, not in terms of quality of player or anything like that. But stylistically, I thought th- this guy – that 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 is – this is Daniel Sedin all over again. And I think I never thought of it that way before because Huberto was 15 pounds lighter when I worked with him. Now that he's got the heft <laughs> – yeah. 
he's winning all these board battles and he's got this small area game that he always had, but not in the same sort of withering way that, that one would describe as Sedin-like. But there's just these simple plays that he makes that create so much space that, you know, I, I'd honestly never thought of it before, but but I was reminded of uh, Prime Daniel Sedin when I was watching the game last night. Uh, to the point, actually, that I uh, that I that I texted Henrik to be like, "Am I am I off base here? Do you think I'm?" And he was like, "Well, I like Danny better, but I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> My vote goes to Danny." <laughs> and and to be clear, obviously, that's um, fantastic for sure. That's very good. Uh, this text comes in unsigned. When you said you risked slowing Miller down by reuniting the lotto line, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Oh, Patterson, slow down Miller. WTF. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. One guy's producing at an elite rate. The other guy isn't. I, I, look, could it work? Absolutely. But I I think there's genuinely a risk there. Uh, lots of thoughts coming in about Elias Pettersson. Also, lots of thoughts coming in about what we learned about the Canucks, what the rest of the road trip is going to look like. We will get into all of those on the other side. 650-650, again, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, your favorite podcatcher. Subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating and review as well. We will be back. Lots more Canucks talk to come on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also does fantastic work covering the team for The Athletic, here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers excavators and loaders avenue machinery.ca 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox keep your thoughts coming in about the Canucks 5-2 loss to the Florida Panthers last night first game of this daunting five-game road trip through the Eastern Conference and then back into Nashville on the way back to end things up uh, Jacob texts in it felt weird to see the Canucks actually lose a game outright last night I had forgotten it was even possible. Yeah, de- <laughs> December 4th, the last time it happened? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. I and, know. And I was kind of thinking, like, you know, the last time this team lost in regulation, everyone got fired. I wonder if that's going to happen again, right? Is that is that the standard we've set now? You have a bad loss in regulation and the organization undergoes massive, massive changes? Because that's what happened last time, right? Well, if you always got a Boudreaux bump, right? Like, if you could always <laughs> if you could always replace your coach with Boudreaux, it honestly would be in everyone's incentive, uh, like, in... Er- Everyone would have the incentive to fire their coach after every loss. I love that that's that's going to be like the next frontier of, you know, like cutting edge sports organizations. Yeah. Like, listen, hey, every every team that brings in a new coach gets a bump. So we're just going to have like six coaches a year. <laughs> it's like guest Get stars. the bump every time. Yeah, it's like, guess, you know, it's, it's like the mini, it's a mini series. You know, it's like true detective sports yes, season. Exactly. Like, new stars every time. Um, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> The way the Canucks play played last night and the way that they have played under Boudreaux, um, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see. And and yet I'm sort of we brought this up really quickly and moved on to Huberdeau's Daniel Sedin comparison. Yeah. But Huberdeau's key matchup basically was against that Pullman pair, right? Um it looked like the Canucks didn't really have a hard match going. At any point, like I can't, I couldn't detect a trend. Maybe there was a soft match uh, somewhere up front, but certainly among defenders, it just felt like they were rolling a little bit. Um, I'm curious as this trip continues, and especially as you face a Tampa Bay team 
that's not quite as deep as it has been. Like, going into Thursday's game, I'm curious to see if we are able to observe something of a change in terms of how often, for example, Oliver ekman Larson plays against Braden Point and Nikita Kucherov, who's back and had a hat trick. And, and just destroying people. Yay! <laughs> Good timing for Vancouver. Um, you know, I'm curious to see if they lean into something like that a little bit more because, you know, I was really surprised when I looked at the head-to-head ice time after the game and saw that, you know, Ekman Larson's like primary matchup basically, well, and there was no primary matchup. It was, it looked like they were just rolling, but he played more against the Panthers third line than he had against their top six. And and I just, I was very surprised by that in terms of, you know, what what we're, what we're used to seeing from this Canucks team, right? Like I would have thought that Oliver Ekman Larson would have played more against the top offensive players. I, I wonder if partly there was a recognition on the part of the Canucks that they needed to roll. They needed to get guys going well, I think there's two with things. the long Yeah, the line. long layoff. And then also when the game is kind of out of reach, I wonder if the matchups kind of go out the window a little bit yeah. in the final, you know, the final period. But it, but it, was, true. it was true all game. Like the, the Pullman, the Pullman um, hunt pair played a ton against Huberto right off the bat. I was very surprised. And I want to talk about the Canucks blue line performance in that game. Because yesterday, before the game, obviously, on our show, you know, we kind of ran through some of the things we thought would be really key for the Canucks winning that game. And really none of them ended up happening. You know, we talked about uh, winning the percentage, the shooting percentage battle, which they didn't do. You know, surviving early, which they didn't do, giving up a couple goals. And I brought up Quinn Hughes, right? And I thought he he was going to have to have a really strong game to be able to get play going in the other direction for the Canucks. You mentioned Tyler Myers. We had a lot of listeners nominating other guys on the blue line as well, like Luke Shen, like um, Oliver ekman Larson, Brad Hunt, I think you brought up as well. You know, with Quinn Hughes, I thought there were some really impressive individual moments. That total impact on the game didn't really come together like I was kind of expecting or saying it. Almost it, had a breakaway, though. Yeah, he almost did have a breakaway. He had a, he had a great... Uh, breakout that ended up with that Brock Besser chance up front. He did some impressive things in the offensive zone. Like, it's Quinn Hughes. Even if he's not at his absolute apex, he's still a really effective player who's going to make highlight plays. What did you think of the rest of the blue line and their performance in that game against the Panthers? Yeah, I mean, I thought the Panthers had a lot of chances, but I think the Panthers are going to have a lot of chances against everybody. That's kind of what the Panthers are. Uh, You know, I thought thought there was a really interesting Bruce Boudreaux quote, and I'm going to read it courtesy of Jeff Patterson from today's availability because one thing that's interesting about this team is their defensive results are pretty good even though going into the season nobody thought they would be we spent a lot of time talking about the Achilles heel being the right side of the Canucks defense and and now you look at their five-on-five results defensively and like why are the Canucks not in a playoff spot right now it's it's actually that they haven't scored or generated a ton it's not that they've been surrendering that much even though their actual like goal prevention numbers are inflated because of just how good because their goaltending has been. Yeah, but, but just to, to reinforce that point, even people who are like extremely optimistic about the Canucks would always acknowledge, but the defense could be a major issue, right? Like that right. was just the clear conventional wisdom, and rightfully so, looking at the totally. roster. But there's this habit that we can get into of being like, well, the defensive play that's for the blue liners, and the offensive play right. that's for the forwards, yeah. right? And that's not really how it works, right? Forwards contribute to defense, and defenders contribute to offense. Here's this Bruce Boudreaux quote asked by Jeff Patterson about a lack of offense from D outside of Quinn Hughes and whether he thinks there is more from the guys he's got. And he said, 
Look at all the good teams in the NHL, take the top 10, their defense are all mobile, and they can rack up points and create offense from the defense. Of course, we would like more of that, but sometimes we just don't have the personnel for that kind of play. So when you don't do that, you better shut other teams down. When you're looking at things you'd like, another mobile puck-moving defender always comes to the top of my list. I think that's a really interesting comment, particularly because the Canucks are about to see... Victor Hedman, Sergeyev, Cernak, yeah. and... Roman Yossi. <laughs> McDonough. Roman yeah. Yossi in Nashville. Yeah. Although, Yossi's almost so mobile that I think he's inefficient. He's like a volume... <laughs> he's like a really high volume shooter. He's like, like a hero ball player like in, in basketball. Iverson. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. he almost cannibalizes the overall offense because of how puck dominant he is. Uh, but John Carlson in Washington. And then, obviously, we all know what Carolina's defense can do and how they play. So... You know, it's going to be an interesting contrast because this kind of gets back to the heart of a discussion that's been going on really since the Canucks no-show in Buffalo right at the start of the season, their fourth game of the year, which is like, is this a run-and-gun team? What's their identity? Yeah. Right? And under Boudreaux, it feels like we've talked about them as this high-flying team, but really, they've been scoring fewer than three goals a game in the 10 games that he's coached, and it's been a lot of... Narrow wins, right? Narrow wins, leaning on goaltending, leaning on a one, a two-one scoreline or a three-two scoreline, grinding out wins in overtime. Like we still, it comes back to being able to see this team clearly. Like, what is this team? How? What do they need? And and the idea that part of the offensive struggles is in fact based on the blue line, based on their ability to transition and create an environment for offense from the back end. I think it's a really interesting one, and it was really interesting to hear Bruce Boudreaux address it in such stark terms. Well, today. it's always interesting when a coach makes very specific points about what the roster is lacking, like mm-hmm. that, right? And now Absolutely. it's a little different when it's a new coach and a new GM. Well, that's or, when it's most fascinating. Yeah, but it's it, it's not quite as pointed in that circumstance, right? Because you're not calling out your boss. Sure. You're right, because he's <laughs> not the guy who assembled the roster. No, they're trying to figure it out, too. Exactly. Which is, which is such an interesting place to be in. And I, I do think it's really interesting because everyone, you, you can look at the roster and you can look at the cap sheet and say, okay, they clearly really need to add talent on the defense, right? But there's a lot of different types of defensive talent out there. And I think it's interesting to hear directly from Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux, who, you know, obviously has the support and the confidence of Jim Rutherford that, you know, we're not just looking for better defenders. Like, we're not necessarily just looking for a better version of Luke Shen out there, right? Like, we're looking for a specific... This is the how the game is played now. We are looking for those types of guys. And it definitely gives you... You know, I, I I mentioned in the first segment, like, what did we learn about the Canucks, not just for the rest of the season, but going forward? And Bruce Boudreau might be pointing us in that direction, right? That there might be a legitimate concerted effort to, to add to that area of the roster. And as you said, you know, with Oliver Ekman-Larsen, you look at his point totals and you can you can characterize them as as disappointing, but he is contributing offensively. He's getting the puck going in the right direction. He just hasn't been rewarded with the points. I don't think it's, you know, you don't need to go out there and find a bunch of defensemen who are going to put up 30 or 40 points for you, but you need to have those guys who can at least contribute to the offensive environment, right? And I think that's what Bruce Boudreaux is getting at. And you look at how he's used Tyler Myers since he's taken over and how he's allowed Tyler Myers to play. And I think that's a recognition of Tyler Myers is, probably the second guy behind Quinn Hughes on the roster most capable of doing that for this team, of moving the puck and generating offense for this team. Totally. Uh, You know, I had a really interesting chat this morning with Canucks assistant general manager Derek Clancy, the the new assistant GM, longtime player personnel director or or 
pro scouting director in Pittsburgh. He was also the player personnel director, promoted to that role by Jim Rutherford. Uh, and and I'll be running a Q&A at The Athletic a little bit later this afternoon. And, you know, Clancy's an interesting guy because he was a player coach in the ECHL back when that was still a it. thing. I love right? it. And he he had some interesting comments about how going from playing, having that soft transition to playing and coaching, and then being a coach at the ECHL and the AHL level for seven years before he became a scout informed his ability to... You know, sort of, and I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, see through the stat sheet in terms of how a player is used, what role they're in, and maybe how they could be used differently within a winning mix as you put the puzzle pieces together. And one player that he brought up as an example was Justin Schultz in Edmonton. And, you know, that's a fascinating one because... Schultz was acquired for a third-round pick by the Penguins. He was getting booed like Larry Murphy style yeah. in, toward the end of his Edmonton tenure. And he came to Pittsburgh and immediately became a top-four defenseman for a back-to-back Stanley Cup champion, right? And, and and they would not have won either cup without him, but especially the second cup when they lost Latang. No chance without Justin Schultz. And, you know, those are the types of moves that I think this team needs to rebuild their blue line, right? Like, you're not going to get... Colton Pareko. No. It makes no sense for this team to acquire John Klingberg, right? You can't acquire another 29-year-old defenseman who's going to cost six-plus million dollars a year from now. The team has, like, three of those guys, you know? They're going to need to find the imperfect player who provides more within this environment than he has elsewhere. That's how that's... Look at the Panthers last night. Gustav Forsling, yeah. perfect example, right? A guy tailor-made for the way that they play. Uh, Radko Gudis too. Honestly, he's been great for them in a the top four role. Um, was sort of seen as a third pair guy when they signed him. Right. Those are the moves that this Canucks team needs to make. Um, and and it was really interesting to hear him sort of specifically talk about Schultz as an example of a guy who can have more success elsewhere because those are the deals. That is how this Canucks blue line will get rebuilt. And if you're looking for probably the most impressive piece of work that the Rutherford group did in putting the Penguins over the top, Daly. Yeah. Um, Daly for Scuderi, uh, Schultz for a third, um, bringing in those sort of anonymous-ish defenders and, and creating a blue line that was far more than the sum of their parts. Um, you know, that is like, if they could replicate that here, boy, would that have a huge impact on this team. And those are the deals you can make without giving up a boatload of future assets as right. well, right? Are those kind of challenge deals where you're banking on a change of environment, really getting the most out of the player. Because the other thing with Klingberg, as much as he doesn't fit in terms of the age or in terms of what his salary he's going to command, he's also going to be a very expensive player to acquire, right? Because there's going to be a lot of teams that are very interested in his services who are contending right now. So right. who have more motivation exactly. to push in chips now. Yeah. And we've heard from Jim Rutherford. He's not interested in doing that. He's no. not interested in moving young players, moving picks, rightfully so, to help this team get better right now. So if you're kind of going value shopping, right, you're like, okay, maybe we'll move a third round pick instead of a first or a second. Yeah, those are the bets that you're going to have to win. You're going to have to find those players where – okay, it's not clicking for this team, but we think in this environment, all of a sudden we're going to get a different version of the player. I mean, 
you could almost make the argument that like, that's kind of what's happened with Tyler Myers here, right? Like, he stayed on the same team, but the environment around him has changed in terms of what he's being asked to do under Bruce Boudreaux, and all of a sudden you're seeing a bit of a different player. Now, I know if Tyler Myers, it always comes back to the contract. I understand that. I'm not saying, oh, all of a sudden, you know, he's great value on this deal, but by changing the environment, it's kind of a proof of concept of what Clancy is talking about, right? By changing the environment, I think you're getting more out of the player. Potentially. My question, though, about Myers pertains more to the sustainability of what he's done over 10 games totally as, opposed to, as opposed to the contract. I, I mean, you know, when you buy a UFA guy the way Myers, you know what I mean? Like when you're, it's not like they extended Myers themselves. They, they bought a UFA, yep. they bought UFA years. That's a competitive marketplace. And there, there was long been a lie in this market that like Myers had no other options. The Canucks bid against themselves and, and that's absolutely untrue. Um, but, you know, the... The fact is that you're all you're never going to get value from you're never going to get surplus value from those contracts anyway. Um, UFA market is a hard place to win in. A very very hard place to the, win. The, in. the most inefficient way to spend your money is on UFAs. But um, you know, I, I think Myers is look Myers is a capable veteran guy. I just I don't know that he's a new player under Boudreaux, but I think you're right that it's a proof of concept that you know at the very least you can get more out of players who. Uh, you know, when they change environment or when the environment changes around them. And and I do think that's going to be the route that the Canucks need to take. Yeah. Um, it's also, I think, should be a very promising sign for fans who are looking at this team and thinking it's fun to see them winning, right? But we we know that this isn't good enough. We know that there's distanced travel before this team is back to doing the types of things to other teams that the Panthers did to the Canucks last night, right? Which is just sort of bide your time, wait for two mistakes, and then win and cruise, right? Um, To get back to that contending level. You know, I think it's a good sign that you're hearing from management, from Boudreaux, from the new leadership of this organization, at least some skepticism. It it feels like they're not caught up in the 8-0-1 start or the 8-1-1 start. It feels like they're trying to do exactly what we're doing right now, which is just see this team clearly yeah. before charting a course forward. And I think that's really refreshing because it feels very different from the like urgently make the playoffs thing that we saw in the latter stages of the Jim Benninger. Well, and there's two. One of the other things that I always find frustrating with sports teams do is you get a bunch of good young players and then you kind of just, you know, it's almost like you you've assembled your recipe, you're baking a cake, right? And then you can, okay, we have all these good young players and now we'll just let it bake for three seasons and then there'll be so much internal improvement. These guys will be amazing and we'll be a contending team all of a sudden, right? And that's what you can't do. You always have to be looking for those edges to improve even after you have your really important foundational pieces. And that's what I think we're seeing from this front office too is they're not, when they talk about trying to improve the team going forward, they're not doing it in a way where they're coming out and saying, oh, yeah, because these guys we have right now aren't good enough. They're not saying that. They're just saying, yeah, but we need more good players, and we're going to be really creative trying to find them. Yeah, it's the the Pittsburgh model with the the uh, Buzz Fizbits and the Mark Donks of the world, right? And I specifically asked um, Clancy if he was aware of the joke and took some pride <laughs> in it. Um, and he was. He was. He was laughing That's about amazing. it. That's amazing. Yeah, he was. And, you know... I think the other side of this, too, is the integration in the American League. The way that, you know, you you identify minor league talent. The way you take chances on guys and prep guys and get them up. 
you know, that allows you to punch above your weight, which we also saw from their former organization last night as the Penguins did the Canucks a favor and dusted the Ducks 4-1. You know, I mean, Malkin's back now. Shout but, out to Gino Malkin, yeah. Yeah, but that team is, you know, powered by, like, the Rudowells and the Evan Teddy Bluegers. Evan Rodriguez. Evan Rodriguez is going to be on my Selkie ballot, most yeah. likely. You know, it's it's incredible. the The ability to mine value. Is everything, and and I think as especially as the the Canucks are about to go into this game against Tampa Bay first off, and then Carolina, because there's two really interesting dynamics here. One is with Tampa Bay, right? You have this team that has now won back to back cups, but took an awfully long time to get there, and their rebuild, like this team, this the core of this team starts being built in 08 and 09 when they make back to back picks at the very top of the draft and get Hedman and Stamkos in back-to-back years, right? Yeah. Huge. And yet, by the time they win the Cup, their best players are Kucherov, Kucherov, who's a second-round pick taken six years later, Vasilevsky, a late first taken in 2011, three years later, and Braden Point, a third-round pick taken in 2014, the the Jake Furtanen draft, whenever that was. 2014. And so, you know, like, the... The Lightning have won because they never stopped building, right? And then look at Carolina. Carolina makes like 15 draft picks a year. They're, they've been contending. They've been contending. They've been below the cap. And they make a million draft picks a year because they're constantly churning. And when they get picks, they then trade down the order and have a million lottery tickets. And then get guys like Jack Drury in the second from a pick that was 18. And now it's Jack Drury plus two other defenseman prospects. All of that's currency that they're going to probably begin to push into the center of the table to upgrade their roster for this playoff run because, boy, do they have a shot this year, especially with Freddie Anderson playing the way he's playing. So, you know, I think there's a real advantage to being one of the teams that never stops building, that that just never stops building. And, And from that perspective, you know, it's a very different challenge if they're going to recreate that from and I'm talking about Rutherford and Clancy here, from what they did in Pittsburgh, where it was like Crosby and Malkin are in their 30s, everything goes into the middle of yeah. the table now. All in, all the time. Versus versus what this team needs, which is just like a durable, sustainable program to incrementally get better over years and years until you're among the league's best. A few texts I want to read quickly here in the final few minutes of the show. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. We heard the quote earlier from Boudreau. You read it about needing more mobile puck-moving defensemen on the roster. Steve from White Rock texts in, I wonder what Jack Rathbone thinks after hearing that Bruce Boudreau quote. Johnny Mack uh, also says Boudreau has Jack Rathbone in the wings offering great offensive Potential, And I think that is still one of the things I'm most excited to see for the remainder of the season. If Rathbone can get healthy and play some games at the AHL level and then join this team to see him get a real opportunity with Bruce Boudreaux behind the bench. And I also wanted to read this one from Tabby, who says, Right now the Canucks have five defensemen over the age of 28. Jack Rathbone, Jet Wu, the only players in our prospect pool. In five years, this defense is going to be as questionable as it is at the moment. That's from Tabby. And... That's a fair concern, and I think the thing that should... I as, wish that was wrong. As Yeah, but as we're talking about, I think Jim Rutherford and now Derek Clancy and whoever else joins this organization, I think they have their eyes wide open about that, and they are trying to address that, and that's going to be kind of the central challenge is you, we can all see that that prospect pipeline is drying up, that the talent is old, the talent is inefficient on the blue line, 
the challenge for them is going to be to find these creative ways and these other avenues to make it so that in five years, it's not. It, it is significantly improved from where well, it is now. And, and just to put this in really stark terms, right? The Canucks have the second most expensive blue line in the NHL behind the San Jose Sharks, right? And as Brock Besser expires, JT Miller expires, Bo Horvat expires, Elias Pettersson expires the year after, although maybe lesser to a lesser extent with the way he's performed this year, Vancouver's best offensive players are about to get more expensive, right? And their blue line to accommodate those deals has to get both better and cheaper if they're going to be a contending team, that's a really tough trick to pull off. Yeah, it really is. Uh, that's going to do it for us today on the Canucks Hour. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, again, you can subscribe, Google, Apple, Spotify to the podcast. It's out every day just after the show finishes. Also, rate, give us a five-star rating, five-star review as well, if you can. Bick Nazar, Randy Janda on The People Show is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.